It wasn't long ago I was uh, making a phone call to a customer service agent. I was looking for some help of uh, straightening out uh, a problem with um, my mom's uh, TV provider. And so I did what probably all of us have done is I, I called that 1-800 number and um, as, as the person on the other end picked up the line and uh, greeted me, uh, I, it was one of those challenges. I'm sure I'm not the only one that's been there, but uh, they were speaking English, but there was an accent that just really made it tough to understand what they were saying. And so I would continually ask, excuse me, you know, I need you to, to repeat that. Simple words. Again, they were speaking English, but because of their accent, it just made it tough to know exactly what they were talking about. And chances are you've been in that situation. But I also want to recognize that there are times in my own life where I'll be speaking English, but I'll have an accent that will make it tough for people to understand truly what I mean. Case in point, uh, there's a word that uh, I'm sure we all agree that uh, on the other side of the roof are some shingles. Uh, I mean, it's, it's one of those words where we know what we're talking about. We're talking about the roof up there. But yet, uh, because of my accent, you might think that the word is pronounced differently. Uh, there's another word that um, is uh, all about, like if uh, after, you know, I'm, I don't know, I've been out in the garage. I've been uh, doing something down in the basement in the shop or whatever, and I need to wash my hands. I'll get out some soap, and, and I'll be kind of like making sure that uh, they're good and washed. Now, some people might think that the correct way to say that word is that you need to wash them, but I disagree. (laughs) So it was when uh, our girls were really little, I don't know, they were probably elementary age, and um, Sam, our oldest, she might have been somewhere about in the third grade. And um, it uh, it was time for dinner, and I grew up in a home, and I was raising our kids in the same kind of home that uh, before you came to the dinner table, uh, you always had to wash your hands. And so it was kind of the, the, the dinner bell kind of deal, if you will, that basically when it was time to eat, all you had to do was yell out, wash your hands. In the house that I grew up, the six of us came like ravenous dogs as soon as we heard, wash your hands. We would know that go into the restroom, we would have to use some soap, we would have to clean our hands, get together, and then we could sit at the dinner table and we could eat. So... Uh, it was time for dinner, and I said to uh, Sam, our, I don't know, third grade daughter, hey, Sam, it's time to wash up. And she says, we're going to church? <laughs> I was kind of excited about the fact that my daughter was uh, understanding that uh, there are certain things that we do when we go to church, and one of them is worship. But I was like, no, you Go wash your hands, you know. It's this deal where all of us have this understanding in my daughter's mindset that um, worship happened in a specific place. I don't know about you. Maybe you were raised in a certain way. Maybe you continue to believe and to basically practice that your worship of God happens in a specific place. And so we've been moving through this series called Made to Worship. And the idea is is that we all have certain, I don't know, preconceived ideas of what worship is. 
Maybe it's connected to the way that we were raised. Maybe it's connected to something that someone else talks about. Maybe it's what we've seen from a distance. Uh, But many of us, we may be using the same word, worship, but I got to believe that many of us have different interpretations of what that really means. And I'm not talking about just the idea of if you attend a church service and it has different styles of worship. Uh, but what I truly mean is, is that we all have this understanding or this belief system that we understand what worship is when, in fact, we may not have a complete understanding. When I look back on my third grade daughter and think about the fact that she thought worship was something that happened in church, uh, that's good, and that's, you know, that's a great start for an elementary age kid. But now that she's 30, uh, my prayer is that uh, she understands and her practice uh, of worship is so much more than going to a building on a specific day of the week. So we, we have to learn to mature in our understanding. I think the best thing, instead of for us trying to figure out what you think worship is and what I think worship is and maybe what someone else thinks worship is, let's just go to the source, if you would. And we're going to dive into a passage of Scripture this morning that I believe kind of lays out a great understanding of what worship is according to what God's desire is. We... We know that um, there are these letters that are in the New Testament, most of them written by the Apostle Paul. Uh, Maybe you're not aware of this, but the next time you're reading through one of Paul's letters, I'm talking about uh, Romans and 1st and 2nd Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Colossians, a whole bunch of these letters, especially found in the New Testament, they were written by Paul. He follows a pattern of some sorts. And you kind of see it through each one of these letters. And so the next time you read one of Paul's letters, or you're starting to dig into it, I want you to keep in mind that the, the beginning of those letters all begin with this idea of he lays the groundwork of some truth. It's, it's really, I guess the church word for that is doctrine or theology. What Paul does is when he writes a letter to a, a a church, uh, a body of believers, he, he makes this case of what these foundational truths are. And they're all related to who we are and who God is and, and how the blending and how the separation uh, of an understanding of who God is. And then after he kind of lays this groundwork, if you will, he, he transitions, and the back half of his letter is all about the application. And honestly, that's what you're looking for, and that's what I'm looking for. It's this idea of, okay, yeah, I, I'm, I'm reading some theology, some doctrine. Sometimes it's kind of hard to understand, but just tell me what I'm supposed to do, or how do I live that out? For instance, I mean, that's a challenge that I have that, that John experiences that when we share God's word with you, it's one thing just to give you information, but if it doesn't actually transform your life so that it's not just in this room, but, but tomorrow and, and later on in the week that you can figure out how to apply it, what use is it? And so in Paul's letter to the Romans is where we're going to go this morning. If you've got your word uh, with you, I want to encourage you to open up to the book of Romans 
Uh, again, you can open up the church app. You can use maybe a Bible app that's on your phone. But I want to encourage you to please have access to God's Word, not just in this room, but throughout the past week. We've been walking through the 21 days of prayer, and I hope that you've been participating with us as we shoot out these passages of Scripture. We want you to have access to God's Word because I believe, quite simply, that God's Word will transform your life if you actually apply it to your life. And so in the book of Romans, Paul begins with the laying out this foundational truth. It's a truth that many of us struggle with. Certainly the world does. And, and the truth is man is sinful. That at our very core and uh, our being is, is that, that we are sinful And because of being sinful, it removes us from this relationship with God. But yet God's love for us is undeterred. He loves us so much that he resolves the sin issue in our life so that we might be restored to this relationship with him. And so we see that God's mercies are new every morning. And he continues to pour out his mercy and his grace so that we might be reunited with God. Well, the same thing is happening in uh, the, the story about man's sinful life in chapters 1 through 11 in the book of Romans. We see the truth that man opposed God, that we were once enemies of God's. Yet God loved us so much that he sent his one and only son uh, so that we might have life. And what it was that Jesus did on the cross restores us. It, it pays this debt. But then, then Paul does this transition, if you will. And right in beginning in chapter 12, I want to encourage you to flip there to Romans chapter 12. There's a word that uh, should just kind of capture our attention. And, and what we see is Paul writes this. He says, Therefore... I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, uh, everything that I've been talking about for the past 11 chapters, uh, about his mercy and his grace, uh, this is what you should do. You should offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. It's holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. There's our word for this past month. And what exactly is it that Paul wants us to see when we consider this true and proper form of worship? You see, we've got to understand the theology that, that Paul has been laying out there in the first half of Romans so that now we can apply it so that we might understand what true and proper worship is. I didn't always understand what true and proper worship was. I didn't always understand what it was that this theology that the Bible is so full of. I mean, I used to think that, man, God's word was complicated. I thought it was confusing. And many times, I, can't, I just thought it was irrelevant to my own life. But as I dug into God's word, the more I've learned about who he is, and in learning about who God is, Something fascinating has happened. I've learned more about myself. 
And when I learn about myself and I learn about why I do the things that I do, I learn and understand what it is that God has done. He's poured out this mercy and this grace. And quite honestly, it, it, it calls me to respond in some incredible way. And Paul lays out a case for how we should respond to God's love, to his grace. And so in view of God's mercy, what, what Paul wants us to see is that there is, there's a correct or a right way for us to worship, to have a, a good understanding of what it means uh, to worship. We've been using this definition. John talked about it last week. But the idea is that worship is our response to who God is and what he has done. That when you and I worship God, that we understand who it is that God wants us to see him for, but also what it is that he's done. I mean, who he is is the one true living God. He's the creator, God most high. He's the beginning and the end, the first and the last. His name shall be Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. He is the Alpha and the Omega. He's the Jehovah Jireh, the Lord provides. He's Emmanuel, God with us. We worship him because of who he is. There's none like him. There will be none that can measure up to him. He's unequal. And what he's done is he's given you what you don't deserve and not given you what you do. What he's done is he's offered this grace and this mercy. He extends forgiveness time and time again. All of this is found by the blood of his own son who died on the cross in your place and in my place. Who God is is this incredible, powerful being that loves every one of us unequivocally to the rest of his creation. And what he's done is he's secured a way for us to be by his side forever. And so your response to this, God, truly is your worship. The question is, are you worshiping God? You see, when we assemble together, and when you walk into a building like this, or whether you're watching online, and, and when your mindset of what worship is all about, are your eyes fixed on God? Are your ears listening for His voice? Is your heart set on Him? You see, when we come together as this body, and we say that we're going to worship Him, uh, there is this element that many of us, if we're honest, sometimes go to church for reasons other than to worship God. And, and with good intentions and not really with, I don't know, this evil intent in our heart. But, but we come because we want to experience community. And the Bible speaks to the, to the importance of community. Sometimes we come to be comforted. 
And the Bible speaks that God is the God of comfort. Sometimes we come so that we can catch up with a friend that we haven't seen for a while or just to check in on someone. And the Bible tells us that we should be caring towards one another. But first and foremost, we've been called to step into the presence of God and to worship Him. So I'm not exactly sure what you were looking for when you got out of bed this morning. Uh, when you either dialed in or made the trip here and, and said, I'm, I'm going to go to church, I'm going to go to worship, I'm going to experience something. But can I just give you a little bit of, uh, this is what, that, what we want you to experience. Because we want you to experience who God is. We want you to experience and be reminded of who this God is and what it is that he's done for you. We want you to be invited into an opportunity to be able to, to praise him and to call out to him, uh, to cry to him, uh, to surrender to him, to see him for who he is, and in reality, to see yourself for who you are so that you might recognize your need for this one true living God who loves you and who sent his son for you. And so my prayer is, is that as we worship, we understand that the focus is on God and not toward ourselves. My prayer is, is that when we worship, we show him affection that is unmatched and different than any other relationship that we might have. Imagine for just a second if you showed your affection for your kids or your spouse once a week for one hour at a prescribed time of the week. Or, or statistics reveal that it wouldn't be that often. Imagine that you showed your affection, your devotion to your kids or to your spouse or to those that you love and care for. I don't know, maybe on average, about two times a month. Do you think that that relationship would foster growth and intimacy and, and this real sense of belonging? I, I doubt it. In fact, there are these times where we're reminded uh, that we uh, need to show our affection to one another so that we recognize uh, how important this relationship is. And so if we reserve our affection for God for this room, for this time on the screen, and, and we say that this is what I'm going to show my affection to God, I think that we're going to miss something very, very important that we're not going to experience worship for what it truly is. When Paul says that we're to offer our bodies as a living sacrifice there in verse 1, I think what he wants us to truly understand is that worship is the way you live. It's not what you do on Sundays. Worship is the way we live. It's not just showing up on a Sunday and doing something for a while. You know, before Jesus walked this 
planet, uh, the Israelites, and really the rest of the world, uh, they, they worshipped by doing certain things at certain times in certain places. For instance, they would go to the temple or some other holy place on a regular basis. And they would follow these specific rituals. Uh, many times, the ritual would involve some kind of sacrifice. Throughout all of ancient culture, you see these examples where sacrifice was offered uh, to many different gods. And, and truly, uh, the idea was that they would take something that was living and that they would kill it. Most of the time, it was an, an animal animal. Sometimes it would be a human being, but this living creature was killed. The blood was taken out of it. It was prepared specially, and then it was placed upon an altar, and it was burned to their God, whoever it might be. And so when Paul writes these words that we are to offer our bodies as a living sacrifice, all of his audience would have been extremely familiar with what sacrifice was. But then Jesus came, and he spoke about that in the first half of the book of Romans, and and he says that Jesus became the perfect sacrifice once and for all. And, And Paul says that you and I are to become these living sacrifices. We don't have to die Literally. But do you know what the problem is with a living sacrifice? A living sacrifice has a tendency to squirm off the altar as soon as heat is applied. I, I mean, the, man, when I'm all about putting the needs uh, of my wife and, and my daughters and my grandchildren before my own interest, until it kind of becomes uncomfortable for me. I mean, yes, I love my wife. She rocks my world, and I can't imagine spending my life with anyone else. And and I'm so thankful for what God has done. But i got to tell you, there are some times in my life where it is hard to love her like Christ loved the church. It's not because she doesn't deserve it. It's because I'm selfish. It's because when the heat is applied to continue to sacrifice and to put her first, I sometimes want to pout. I sometimes want things to go my way. And Paul's asking us. He's imploring us. He's pleading with us to offer our bodies as this living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. I mean, it was Jesus who said that those who follow him, they're going to feed the hungry. They're going to care for the orphans and the widows. That they're going to visit the lonely and befriend the prisoner. Eat with sinners. Forgive those who have wronged them. The followers of Jesus will give with a cheerful heart, and they will speak with kindness and compassion. That is a tough order. But yet, we've been invited to offer our bodies as these living sacrifices. And that truly is our proper form of worship. It's a, a living sacrifice, the way Jesus would say it, is to love others as Jesus has loved you. You see, your worship of God is expressed in the way you live. It's not in what you do on Sundays. And so Paul gets very practical 
And he jumps into the very next verse, and he says, so this is kind of how you do it. Do not conform to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Uh, This idea of uh, not conforming any longer to the patterns of this world and the, the normal societal acceptance of way things are, but yet we're transformed in something different. You know, a couple of weeks ago, we discovered that everyone worships something, and even good things can become God things in our life. And so if you and I want different results, we've got to do something different. And Paul, he he tells us what that different something is. It's this idea of renewing our mind. What exactly does it mean to renew our mind? How do we, how do we bring that about and, and worship in a way that our mind is renewed? And, and the idea is, is that we recognize how important it is that if we want to break away from old habits, if we want to uh, kind of step away from what the world is doing, then we learn to renew our mind in such a way that we'll understand that a life of worship begins with an informed understanding of God. If you and I want to live our lives for God, if we want to live a life of worship, then it's really going to begin with an informed understanding of God. This is why theology is so important. It's why we must engage our mind I mean, feigning ignorance or claiming to not be a reader is not an excuse. It's truly just laziness. I mean, we don't buy that from our teenagers when they're in school. So why would we change our tune when we become adults? Hear this. If your understanding of God is wrong, not only will your worship be wrong, but your life will be wrong. It's so important for us to have an informed understanding of who God is. All roads don't lead to heaven. All beliefs are not equal. And though it's not popular at all, there is most certainly an absolute truth that we can live by. And we've been called to understand and recognize this. I mean, we can look at the end of Jesus' most famous sermon, if you will. It's in Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7. It's the Sermon on the Mount. He's got this huge crowd of people that are gathered, and he teaches them about what it means to live according to his kingdom and to follow him and to, to live in such a way uh, that, we, that we are living this new life, if you will. And he ends his entire teaching uh, and, and wraps it up uh, with this powerful few verses that it helps us understand that we've got to have a clear understanding of who God is or else nothing will matter. We see these words in Matthew chapter 7. It's there beginning in verse 21. He says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my father who is in heaven. And he goes on and he says, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? 
then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. Jesus didn't say these people didn't go to church. Jesus didn't say they never served others. He didn't say they never volunteered. He didn't say they never actually sang songs to God the Father. He didn't say that they never accomplished great things even in the name of God. What he said was they never knew him. They never knew God. It's so important for us that if we're going to live our lives for God, we better have a clear understanding of who God is and what it is that he's done. You see, a life of worship begins with this informed understanding of who God is and what it is that he's done for each one of us. And so when you take that meal to maybe a a friend's house, someone who's sick or someone who's needing some help because, I don't know, maybe they just had a baby and you're just showing them love and you just want to help them. Have you connected that act with actually who God is in your life or is it just an act of kindness? When, when you volunteer to teach our kids, man, I'm looking around here and I, and I know that there are a bunch of volunteers that help out in our kids' ministry, when you volunteer to teach our kids, is it, is it coming from a place of sacrifice or is it just more fun to hang out with kids than adults? I mean, they get to play games back there. And if everything goes well, they have more snacks than just a piece of bread and something juice. I mean, when you, when you stand and you sing during a church service, is it because of your love for God or is it because it's the end of the service? When you go to work tomorrow and you interact with those people and and you handle that tough phone call or that face-to-face conversation, uh, do you approach it as this is part of my worship of who God is? Or have you compartmentalized that life from your time with God. You see, worship is so much more than what we do on a Sunday, but it's the way we live our life. And and the renewing of our mind, it's this ongoing process. And, And I'm thankful for that because I don't know about you, but I need to be reminded again and again of who God is and what it is that he's done for me. And and so uh, that's why the lyrics of a worship song that we're singing, um, we have to learn to engage not just our voice, but our mind and our heart with the words on the screen. Because it's in those moments when we truly see what it is that we're singing and what it is that we're saying about our God. And, And we connect our heart and our mind with it. We'll recognize that worship is not just music. But it's our life that becomes the offering that we give back to God. I love the verse that we shared on Thursday during our 21-day uh, prayer journey. Um, those of you who um, uh, get the indication on the church app, you saw this Thursday morning. 
uh, at 7 a.m. It came across. It's from Colossians chapter 3. Paul simply writes, he says, Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body you were called to peace, and be thankful. Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Have you responded to who God is and what it is that he's done for you? Have have you lived a life of worship? Maybe you need to call on the name of Jesus for the very first time. You can worship him by choosing to believe that he died for you. You can worship him by uniting with Jesus and living your life fully surrendered to him and letting him lead and guide you. You can worship him by uniting with his death, burial, and resurrection through baptism. Next Sunday is Baptism Sunday. My prayer is is that you will recognize what it is that Jesus has done for you on your behalf and that you take a step towards obedience and walk with him in baptism. Because our life surrendered to Jesus is our response to all that he has done for us. And when we live a life where we point other people to Jesus, the rest of the world will know that he is the one to be praised and honored and glorified. Pray with me. Lord God, we are so grateful for your love and your mercy, for the grace that's extended through Jesus Christ. Father God, my prayer is is that that we'll, we'll recognize that our worship does not end here in this room. Help us to uh, recognize these opportunities and this call on our life to worship you with our very life, with our actions and our words, with the way that we uh, interact with those that are around us. Lord, may we serve you in such a way that people see Jesus when they see us and they don't see us. Yet we pray that our worship is pleasing and honoring, that the words, the actions that we live by uh, reflect uh, your love and your place in our heart. It's in your son's name that we pray. Amen.